understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. Hello and welcome to the More Freedom Foundation podcast with Rob and Hutt, Rory. Hutt. How's it going? <laughs> How's it going, Rory? Yeah, it's going well. It's a good day. The days are getting longer. The flip side of this part of the hemisphere is days will be up to 11 o'clock. You'll get sunshine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the, we're getting our first beautiful uh, summer days here in New York, which, you know, we're not typically getting, we didn't used to get in early April, but hey, you know, it's... Uh, You'll take what you can, better than those yeah. snow bombs. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Those those massive snow bombs that uh, were very bad for Buffalo and for uh, New York City yielded uh, maybe half an inch. Are there any other large environmental disasters you'd like to talk about? Oh, man. Uh, so many. But I think Uh-oh. today we're going to start out with one in Ecuador and the somewhat surprising ramifications it's had in the U.S. legal system and honestly, kind of the world legal system. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting case. So it seemed to be um, during the 80s and the 90s, a Chevron, was it? Well, so it's uh, the beauty of corporate consolidation in the United mm. States is from the 60s until the 1990s, it was Texaco, uh, which is a sort of iconic American oil brand, which has been completely swallowed by what I believe used to be Standard Oil of California. Uh, Chevron is the company. So it's a bit like a Bhopal. What do you have? I've got that name wrong. You know, the horrible chemical disaster in India. Wow. Well, that's the, so the one, didn't that one kill like a thousand people in a day? Yeah. But it's like you have companies buying companies, buying companies, and then they're a bit like, oh, we're not responsible. We only own the company that did that horrific catastrophe. That's, that's exactly, that's exactly the situation uh, in, in Ecuador. So Texaco, I think, had some kind of deal uh, with the Ecuadorian government at that time. Uh, may or may not have honored the terms of that deal. But regardless, the result appears to have been a horrific ecological catastrophe in the Amazon, in Ecuador. And in 1993, a uh, young environment, well, at that point, young environmental attorney uh, named Stephen Donziger uh, opened proceedings in the Southern District of New York against uh, Chevron. Actually, I'm not even sure. He might have opened them against Texaco, which was then later purchased by Chevron. I'm not sure about the timeline on that. Opened uh, proceedings in the Southern District of New York and 30 years later, yes, 30, 30 full years later, we've had what is maybe, but probably not, the last uh, effect of this, uh, this proceeding or aspects of this proceeding made it all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, this past week, where the Supreme Court neglected to uh, take up the matter, but did so, and this is very strange, uh, with a very vociferous dissent on the part of two justices who thought that, in fact, the Supreme Court should see this matter. What we're going to be talking about today is the really quite stunning implications of uh, Chevron versus Donziger. There are many different environmental catastrophes. There are many different court proceedings related to that. Uh, there have also been, uh, I think we've all seen, well, many of us, probably anybody my age has seen Aaron Brockovich or any one of other Hollywood portrayals of the unethical and sometimes even frightening things that large corporations can do when people come after them for ecological disasters. But uh, I, uh, most of the left-wing blogosphere, and apparently 
Also, two very right-wing Donald Trump-appointed judges believe that something new and uniquely disturbing has happened in this case. We have Stephen Donziger, the attorney who was leading this case against uh, Chevron, won a extraordinarily large settlement. $9.5 billion was the last figure that I, that I was looking at. I was looking at other figures that had it at $8.something billion. But yeah, I think because it was from the 90s, so if you add inflation and all that, carry on. There you go. Uh, the judgment came down in, I think, 2011, and Chevron responded by launching an incredible campaign of destruction against Stephen Donziger. And this has led to not just uh, his disbarment, his disgrace, the destruction of his business, but has also led to the Southern District of New York, an incredibly powerful court, honestly one of the most powerful courts in the world, giving itself the right to arrest attorneys that it doesn't agree with. This is not something, uh, as uh, Judges Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh put it in their dissent, this is not something that the Constitution allows. Has this but happened before? Aspects of Somewhat similar things have happened before, mm -hmm. but this is a uniquely egregious case. My understanding is that there's actually a Supreme Court case on this already. There is a somewhat weird little detail around contempt proceedings. Uh, if you are acting contempt of court, there is some interest in that judge being able to lay down the law or prosecute somebody even if the local state or federal authority doesn't want to prosecute that. There apparently is judged to be some interest, but it's very caveated. It's very sort of ring-fenced. Uh, you may note that I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but my understanding is it's a case called Young, and you can go read that. And you tried to go down to the building and uh, sort it all out, but there was a load of Trump people there. <laughs> yeah, there's a problem. You know, I could have could gone, and, gone and asked uh, Judge Kaplan myself, but uh, but I did not. This case has is worth diving into because not just because of what's happened to Donziger, but because what it says really about world government, yeah, um, and the fact that U.S. courts kind of are acting as world government, uh, and how that well, Texaco's headquarters was in New York, isn't that right? So that's why the trial was in New York. Yes, uh, that is why uh, the trial was in New York, but. It's I, to me that's sort of like a chicken or egg question. It's sort of like, well, you know, is is uh, the United States uh, taking extraordinary, you know, universal jurisdiction over the whole world, or is it just acting normally because most of the most powerful organizations of the world are based in New York? You know, mm -hmm. it, it's sort of a. Yeah, uh, I think that the the two things are connected, and the way that sort of. U.S. power over the world is just sort of growing incrementally and slowly case by case is in a lot of ways more powerful and more effective than anything that the U.S. military has done over the past 20 years. Uh, and I think that this case helps to highlight that. And uh, Stephen Donziger, the, the attorney in question, whether he's a sympathetic figure or whether he's just as corrupt as Chevron Public Relations has been putting about for the past uh, 20 years, regardless what has happened to him, has 
international implications if you consider the fact that though U.S. courts, specifically uh, the Southern District of New York, uh, the, the federal district court uh, in New York City, if you consider the fact that these courts are becoming, in a very real way, the world's courts, it's, it's of international concern that these courts are teaming up with corporations to uh, prosecute uh, attorneys who attempt to work to provide a voice to the powerless. And that's definitely uh, what we've seen here. I was interested that the, in Ecuador, I, in my work on this, I haven't focused so much on the crimes in Ecuador themselves, but reviewing some other stuff this morning, it's really, you know, what they're describing it as like the Ecuador's Chernobyl. It's Well, it feels like the thing with the likes of Chern Chernobyl is it's the death estimates seem to vary widely. You know, some people have it as like 10,000 and others have it at like in 20, 23 people killed. There's something about pollution that's very hard to pin down. And I feel like this gets right in there where, you know, this is one of the most, you know, insensitive and important parts of the world, environmentally speaking. And it is just a train wreck. You know, it's just a smash and grab as much as you can um, understand. And, yeah, you know, you're dealing with 1960s Ecuador. So um, I get the feeling there wasn't too much care given. Or, and then it... You consider, like, if you consider films like Aaron Brockovich or other uh, issues that, that folks might be aware of, there's tremendous difficulty in pinning these things down, even in the United States, where you've probably got great uh, record keeping around cancer rates in a given jurisdiction. And you can you can do the math and point yeah. out, well, actually, because of this power plant, this sort of thing, we saw this spike in cancer rates, this mm -hmm. and the other thing. Uh, in Ecuador, uh, we're dealing with the Amazon uh, rainforest. We're dealing with indigenous people in those rainforests. So even among the already poor country of Ecuador, these are some of the most marginalized people within Ecuador. Yeah. So it's incredibly difficult to make this case and really a testament to what Stephen Donziger and his team have managed to do over the past 30 years to get these stories in front of people and to get this uh, get the world to know as much as it does about Texaco now Chevron's malfeasance in uh, these areas. But the stories, some of the stories I've read are, are I mean, quite horrible. Just fuck, the treasures contaminated forever, um, and the whatever settlement that Texaco organized. Uh, they made a company town, didn't they? Uh, well, the the I believe there was a you know, company town. There was all kinds of abuses, this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. But the I believe at some point there was some kind of deal or procedure with the Ecuadorian government of the time, where Texaco made some incredibly half-assed commitments to clean things up or gave away a, a somewhat mm -hmm. small amount of money. Uh, didn't even honor those aspects of it, and and didn't even <laughs> begin to. Um, begin to deal with the problem. Uh, so it reminds me of the, the British in Iran. They had a deal. I think Iran was to get like 20% and they'd take the rest. Uh, they didn't even give them that. <laughs> get, getting away with what you can get away with is And a wee bit more. And a wee bit more. It's, it's the, the, the hallmark of imperialism uh, for all time. <laughs> well, this brings an end to the good neighbor policy. <laughs> um, well, the good neighbor policy was already uh, pretty uh, uh, pretty dead. Uh, and I think the good neighbor policy was what the U.S. government was uh, putting forward. U.S. corporations were very rarely uh, on board. And with that, with that sort of thing.
And it's really a testament to the incredible work that Donziger's team has done here, that they, they managed to make people as aware of this crime as they are. In 2003 or thereabouts, uh, Chevron succeeded in removing this litigation after 10 years in the state of New York down to Ecuador because the, the Chevron argued that it made more sense to litigate this in Ecuador. And uh, they judged, they assumed that because of the power that they have, the wealth that they had, they'd easily be able to steamroll Donziger and his poor indigenous clients in Ecuador. And that's not actually what happened. Uh, I think it was in, at some point over the period of 2003 to 2011, uh, they won uh, in a lower court. Uh, they won, initially they won, I think, almost $20 billion. Wow. And then a higher court in Ecuador. And this is important to remember, this has been litigated at multiple levels in Ecuador. This is something that Chevron wanted to be sent to Ecuador. And they and Chevron lost. Uh, and eventually the highest court in Ecuador awarded uh, $9.5 billion uh, to these uh, very deserving plaintiffs. Chevron has absolutely not paid that. And Chevron will never pay that, I think is, I mean, I don't want to say anything that litigious. I don't want to say anything that uh, concrete. I don't want to say anything that, that concrete, but my expectation is that Chevron will never pay that. And I think that's, that's a part of this controversy that isn't emphasized very much. Um, the fact that, and it's, I think, an illustration of the power of the Southern District of New York, the power of U.S. courts is that you can get any kind of award you want from the highest court of any country you want. I mean, Ecuador is, to some degree, friendly to the United States. It's not a yeah. enemy country in any way. There, no one talks about invading it. Exactly. There, there was a uh, more left-leaning... I think this may or may not have had something to do with the timing of Chevron making such a terrible mistake, uh, is that I think is it Rafael Correa... Correa? Uh, was a member of the first pink wave in Latin America and around 2000, 2002, 2003 and thereabouts. Um, and he was more left-leaning than prior Ecuadorian governments had been. So that might have something to do with how um, badly Chevron lost here. I, I don't know the, the minutia of that. But it's important to emphasize that the highest court of Ecuador awarded this money. And mm -hmm. it's just known that if they can't make their case in the New York courts for that judgment, they're never going to get it. And unfortunately, uh, Donziger and his team have failed to make that case. They've also failed to make that case in other, I think, arbitration uh, courts in Europe. Uh, it gets tremendously complex. I'd have to spend oh, yeah, yeah. months looking at this to actually, the complexity of how that worked. But between 2011 and 2023, it's become clear that Donziger and his team have failed in multiple places to get this, get Chevron forced to pay this money. And I think that's that's just worth noting here and not paid much attention to that even though all of the details of this controversy were in Ecuador, even though Chevron's own lawyers about 20 years ago uh, made a very strong argument that Ecuador was the right place to decide this case. It didn't matter uh, because New York courts said the opposite. And it's, you know, fundamentally 
the lowest level of federal courts in the United States, the Southern District of New York. You've got the Supreme Court, you've got the circuit courts, and then you've got the, the district courts. Uh, the lowest level of the federal courts in the United States is effectively acting as a more supreme Supreme Court to the entire Ecuadorian justice system. And that's not just the way that it works for Ecuador. Uh, that also, you know, you might, it would be unjust, but you might assume that probably not be incorrect in assuming that Latin American countries, other countries of the global South have less power in U.S. courts. But this is also the case for a powerful allied countries. Uh, there have been specifically related to Iran sanctions. We've seen many successful prosecutions in U.S. courts of very big, supposedly powerful European banks. Uh, Standard Chartered is one that comes to mind. I think there's been a number of other Swiss banks, French banks, British banks uh, that have lost and lost big in U.S. courts because they did something that pissed off the U.S. government. And I think this is a really underemphasized aspect of U.S. power. I've got a produced video on this Donziger matter that focuses much more strongly on just what this means in terms of world government, like real functioning world government. I argue in that video that we actually have world government already, and it's incredibly idiosyncratic. It's, it is kind of like a drunken medieval monarch. It's incredibly unpredictable. Uh, you well, don't I'm know. reminded of the patent trolls where it turns out the man filing a lot of these patents for, you know, generic software, his uncles like the judge, <laughs> but this is, you know, recognized worldwide. I know obviously the likes of Russia and China tell them where to go, but mm-hmm. a lot of people is, you know, it's cheaper to pay him the 20 grand to make him go away than to fight it legally. Yeah. It's uh, the, and IP law, intellectual property law, patent trolls, like that's just one one of a thousand separate matters, separate issues, separate concerns where the sort of legal tendrils of U.S. empire are spreading everywhere. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a lot more important than, you know, some military base in Syria. Uh, I'll, tell you, yeah. I'll tell you that for free. Um, and just not, and I think it's, that's why it's worth dedicating a whole podcast to this Donziger matter. Uh, because it's just not appreciated. Um, just looking at one matter in, in detail, you, you can begin to get a sense of just this sort of subterranean workings of, uh, of U.S. power. The, the, all the military stuff, all the country destroying, that quite literally, wait a second, can it literally be if I'm using a metaphor? But it, it, it is proverbially the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it, it is barely, you know, barely scratching the surface. Well, it's also the stuff you can, you know, see and hear is, you know, military personnel while what goes on in a courtroom isn't really, it's hard to know what's happening. But yet it it has a huge influence on world events. It's incredibly difficult. So I've been aware of of and troubled by this Donziger matter for a decade, not not quite a decade, but certainly for half a decade at this point. Uh, But I've never made a video about it because I'm just like, I just, I don't, I can't spend the time to figure out whether this Donziger guy actually did unethical things, whether, you know, how, because it's so fiendishly complex. And the and you have a legal background and are into politics? Yes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Like, like you're the perfect person and you're struggling. Yeah. Like, I just couldn't. And most of my news sources were incredibly biased. It was exclusively 
left-wing podcast, left-wing bloggers talking about how this Donziger guy was was getting screwed and, you know, fairly hard left. And I'm just like, you know, I, I don't I, I don't want to express one ideological side's version of these events, so I just, I can't. But what changed that was uh, last week or week before's uh, Supreme Court ruling when you actually had uh, some Donald Trump appointees, the most right wing of the right wing, essentially endorsing this same version, saying that Donziger is getting, is getting royally screwed here. How long has he been under house arrest? So I think he's out now. Uh, okay. But he was under arrest for a period almost amounting to three years. That's incredible. Which is which is great. So so we should emphasize. So okay. So it shouldn't. It's it should be surprising, but uh, it is not surprising if you're familiar with these matters that Chevron never paid the money. Um, it should be outrageous, but I think is not particularly surprising that Chevron then decided to make a crusade out of screwing over Donziger. Um, and this is this. You know, this stuff gets into that minutia that I just am not comfortable. Like I, when I when I talk about stuff on this podcast or on the the video channel, um, I really want to know what I'm talking about, and I am actually pretty confident that I know what I'm talking about. But so so like I, it's really important for me to like get things right. And the problem with the minutia of the the incredible complexity of uh, Chevron versus Donziger. So Chevron, after they lost in Ecuador, decided, yes, they had a bunch of proceedings against those plaintiffs and to dispute that and arbitration and the other thing. But the main thing they did was start suing Donziger in New York courts over the details of how that Ecuadorian process went. And I just don't have the time. There's a lot there about like was documents forged and exaggerated and people paid off to say this, that and the other. And, and what's what's key to emphasize is it it seems like both Donziger and Chevron were bribing people and mm-hmm. I mean, allegedly allegedly uh, allegedly 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 uh, but it seems likely it seems uh, it seems like it the the store there are stories about both sides uh, committing bribery and playing hardball and taking advantage of court that may not operate, uh, uh, you know, to Scandinavian levels of uh, propriety, propriety or what have you. Uh, there was definitely hardball. So, and it seems like a lot of uh, courts in the United States, as this Chevron versus Donziger has elevated through, and what makes it even more complicated is that it has elevated through multiple levels, multiple times. This is the second time that the Supreme Court has declined to deal with an aspect of this. So I can't, say with great confidence, it looks to me very much like uh, this is uh, Goliath beating up on David. Uh, this is a heroic environmental lawyer who beats Chevron uh, at, at its own corrupt game in Ecuador, and now he's lost his career for it. And that's what it looks like to me. But that could very much be my biases. So I don't, you know, that that I don't want to, I don't want to say that, um, uh, that's absolutely the truth or absolutely what happened here. What I am confident in saying, uh, because I've got right-wing Supreme Court justices and uh, the lefty podcasters on my side saying this, is that what happened next is outrageous. So this case, all kinds of really crappy things happened to Donziger. He got disbarred. Uh, some of the judgments against him, there's this crazy thing called like a constructive trust. So basically he's not allowed to make any money off of this Ecuador case anymore, which is kind of extraordinary. It's his main job 
is well, yeah, it's his life get, at this point. It's his life is trying to get Chevron to pay these plaintiffs and obviously to get paid off of that. That is what trial attorneys do. And he is good at it because he's the only one that's <laughs> yeah. successfully won such a case. Yeah, yeah. So that's his job. But apparently the court has ordered that he's not allowed to make any money off of that. And if he makes any money off of that, he has to shoot it back to Chevron, which is insane to me. But oh, so even if he wrote a book about his experiences, profits would have to go to Chevron. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I think that might that might be the implication. And I think that even now, even after uh, you know the Supreme Court, especially because the Supreme Court has declined to hear this case, it's entirely possible that Chevron could come after him for money mm-hmm. related. Because now I think he he gets paid for public speaking. Like could come after him for those public speaking fees because it might be related. You know, anyway. It's yeah. this incredibly Kafka-esque nightmare situation he was put into. But I don't know. Maybe that all makes sense for some reason. Like, it's it's complex. I, don't, I can't, I, and I'm not going to spend the months necessary to tease that out. But it's clearly being an example of him. No one else, but also it, you kind of feel like deep state stuff. They're also protecting other oil companies. Of like, they're, they're going to be helping them because it's all, we're all in the same team together. Of course, but then there's another step to this, which I do have, you know, I can say with great confidence, okay. because I've got the Supreme Court Justice and Lefty Podcasters, um, and also just my my basic knowledge of constitutional law from like my first year of law school. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to take a person's freedom, it's difficult. Uh, you need to get the state involved. Like this, not just the state, but also specific slices of the state mm-hmm. in the United States, the executive branch of the state needs to be involved in taking away a person's freedom. And what happened was because Donziger, quite understandably, wasn't satisfying or was perceived to not be satisfying some aspect of this Kafkaesque process and was basically just filing paperwork saying, no, I shouldn't have to do that. The Southern District of New York found him in contempt of court, wanted to throw him in jail for that, went to the relevant I think that the Department of Justice, the relevant prosecutors of the Department of Justice, the part of the executive branch that is in charge of depriving freedom of people in federal matters, um, and said, we would like to throw him in jail. And the Department of Justice looked at this and was like, uh, no, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> like, we are not going to do that. Uh, that does not look like something that we should do. This looks wrong. We're not going to, or no, I mean, they didn't. No, they didn't. They just they didn't declined. Say they just declined to do it. And the Southern District of New York said, "Mm, you know what, we're just going to hire some of our friends and they're going to prosecute him. And then our friends who prosecuted him, uh, whether or not these friends are how these friends are affiliated with the court or affiliated with Chevron. Well, who's Mm -hmm. to say Um, we're going to hire them. They're going to do the prosecution and then we're going to put them under house arrest. Um, And that is what made uh, the right-wing Supreme Court people go, like, what the heck? That is what has made a lot of people go, wait, what the heck? Like, it is really, really troubling that one of the most powerful courts in the world has decided to give itself the right to incarcerate lawyers it doesn't like. That's what happened here. And that's really, really screwed up. And that is that does sort of raise this to the level where everybody should be very troubled. And you see these powers snowballing, like, is there anything else you could, you know, any other unpopular lawyers getting arrested? Because it feels like once you've done it once. Exactly. That's exactly the fear. Absolutely. Infinitely. Uh, There is some sense that it it is very strange 
that a supreme that Supreme Court justices would dissent against the choice to not see a matter. And if any attorney who's in Donziger's position going forward will be able to put that dissent in a in a motion. And any judge looking at that will look at that dissent and be like, oh, maybe I don't want to do this. However, the settled law of the land at the Second uh, the, the Second Circuit, because the Supreme Court did decline, you know, it's just a dissent, it's not technically law, Yeah, the Supreme Court did decline to look at this. So now legally, courts are able to do this. And of course, there are other situations where a very wealthy corporation with a too close relationship with a federal circuit judge. I mean, a bit like uh, a patent troll with the uncle as the judge. Yeah. Very famously, Donald Trump appointed a whole bunch of uh, federal circuit court judges who are, uh, some of them are competent and great. Some of them are not so great. Not so great. Um, some of them are right wing ideologues. Some of them are just perfectly corrupt chancers from New York real estate. Um, who are now have lifetime appointments to the federal bench and That's could nice. be very could be delighted to um uh to lock up uh any number of yeah. attorneys who have proceedings against uh oil companies that they're friends with uh yeah so you know it's it's really 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 troubling or silicon valley or whatever big company whoever whatever it, it's it's of infinite application, and it's a really really bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, we, I, you know, it is very tin pot dictator sort of stuff you hear. Yeah, yeah. Throwing attorneys in jail is just mm-hmm. generally speaking not a good thing. No. If if that's what's happening, your system is in serious serious trouble. Um, and yes, this is an incredibly convoluted special case, but. It's a principle that has been established and that the Supreme Court has neglected to do anything about. Um, and that is really troubling. And again, there's international ramifications here. These are plaintiffs, really powerless people who are managed, who managed against all odds and thanks Always. to the work of Stephen Donziger and others uh, to win this really large settlement. And it's gone. You know, uh, like mm-hmm. you think anybody, you think any other attorney is going to try and Take the yeah. take up this matter after Donziger has literally had his career destroyed. Yeah, um, and it's it's that example might might be uh, exactly what you're talking about. Rory might be the more important thing. Like Donziger has managed to recreate himself as sort of a, a, a martyr or what have you. He's going to be able to, oh yeah, go on go on speaking tours and write books for the rest of his life, hopefully. Uh, uh, but the next attorney is just that much less likely. And then after that, and yeah, after that, and after that is is just that much less likely to go in and attempt to make a career going after a big company. And that's not that's not just bad for people in the United States or Ecuador. That's bad for people everywhere in the world. Oh yeah, because this was originally in Ecuador, and it's like it felt like they've, they've dragged them all the way to America and says, "Tell them what what we want to hear." Yeah, it's uh, it's a mess. Uh, and I just one more thing on the on the complexity. Like I wish I had the bandwidth to cover <laughs> more of these sorts of issues. Uh, you know, it is the tip of the iceberg that I talk about on the yeah. channel. Just the way that the U.S. has destroyed the Middle East, because that's just really obvious, really easy stuff to yeah. talk about. There's video. There's all sorts of evidence, and it, and it's it's straightforward. I mean, we're bombing places. 
it's 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 hard to it's not it's not difficult to talk about it's not difficult to appeal to a wide audience with it but interestingly like the first real big success i had on this channel was talking about one other little aspect uh, the foreign account tax compliance act which was just a, another aspect of us empire that i managed to get very 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 familiar with um but there are dozens or hundreds or depending on how you measure it thousands of examples like FATCA. So FATCA was just this one little corner that I was able to talk about at some length because I literally, I was working in a law firm where uh, all of our U.S. business had had dried up and they were just like, everybody's really worried about this FATCA clause in their, uh, in the, in the contracts, Rob, could you just figure out what's going on? And I probably, you know, back in 2012, I was probably one of the world's greatest experts on what FATCA was. But that's because I literally had six months to look into it. If I were to really do this Donziger matter justice, really talk about the full range of implications, the many, many ways that this case shows how powerful the United States is, it would take me six months to sort of like dive in and, and, and make those presentations. And there are literally dozens or hundreds of things uh, like this uh, that um, that I just don't have the time to get to. And that's why I'm, I'm actually kind of grateful that uh, the Supreme Court, uh, those very hated Supreme Court justices put that that opinion out there that really gave me the confidence. Uh, just that that, you know, that 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 coincidence between. Uh, Justice Gorsuch and like Chapo Trap House, you know, leftist yeah. podcast, and to see them saying the exact same things. So what's worrying is uh, we're talking about other um, legal cases like this, but this scared you to even talk about it because you thought, oh, well, the only people are talking about it are these lefties. It's it's incredible that it's even sort of killing journalism on the subject. Yeah, but because th there's so many establishment sources that are just completely ignoring it. Uh, or or putting out really perfunctory uh, coverage that makes people think, well, you know, if the New York Times is saying, you know, disgraced attorney Stephen Donziger, then really, you know, well, they never mislead. Yeah, you know, it, it just it just, and it's it's not fear. It's not mostly fear, though. This choice to put him under house arrest certainly introduced a fear element. But it's just, it's mostly complexity. And if you've got, you know, two to three lines uh, from trusted authorities that are just like, uh, you know, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's a great legal guy on Twitter who people who became fairly powerful or, or, or popular uh, discussing some aspect, I don't know, some aspect of Trump stuff. No, actually, I think he was a guy people went to for news around the 2020 election when it was sort of like, oh, he was the guy who knew about election challenges and he was sort of discarding all of them. And he was fairly right wing. So he was trusted as he was like being like, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen or whatever. Um, but, you know, he's a f trusted source for legal news. And the one thing he ever said about Donziger was like, nah, yeah, he's all oh, he's I looked into that a little bit and he seems like a real corrupt piece of piece of garbage or something yeah. like that. And like, if that's what you see when you Google, you're like, well, I don't know, and I guess, you know, there is this. So I read probably half of a Second Circuit um, opinion from 2016 that sort of goes through in detail, and they don't mention anything that Chevron did wrong. Yeah, uh, I got that from other coverage, but they, they just do this list of things that uh, Donziger either admitted to or might have done in, in Ecuador. And if you just put that list in there without anything that Chevron did, yeah, you get the sense you're like, yeah, this guy does seem kind of dodgy, and it sounds like he's a bit of a blowhard, and 
he puts some things in emails that he probably shouldn't. And the fact he was put under house arrest makes you go, well, he must be guilty. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's sort of, that's the way, it's the complexity plus just a dollop of fear or just a dollop of insecurity about your own knowledge or approach to these issues. And that just means that these things just don't get covered. Yeah. Um, And uh, I guess I'm grateful for that weird, uh, you know, that Judge Gorsuch uh, gave me. Are you bad fellows? Yes, exactly. My, my big pals, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, gave me the uh, the opportunity to cover this thing that I, I had suspected was just a weird left wing obsession, but is actually no. It's it's just as bad uh, as uh, as I thought, and even some of the most right wing people in the country are uh, agree wholeheartedly. Can you see any traction building to attack? You know, bring this case back up and you know make Chevron pay. Well, the the thing is that I think it's going to be harder. No, I, I see no traction. No, uh, for sure. Okay. Pay none. Um, but what I do think is that all of this notoriety, all of this, just Donziger's public profile, and he does have a public profile, um, is making it a little more likely that the persecution of Donziger will stop. I think that it it is it is going to make it harder for Chevron to go after. Donziger as hard as they did. I think that the chances of the Ecuadorian plaintiffs recovering from Chevron are essentially nil at this point. I think Mm -hmm. they have lost in New York courts on that level. They've lost in arbitration uh, in in somewhere in the Netherlands or something on that level. And so that the only thing that they have to hold on to is Chevron's continued interest in exploiting oil and gas resources in Ecuador and the Ecuadorian government's interest in holding on to that. I talk a lot on this channel about way the way that the balance between uh, foreign producers of petroleum resources and the United States has shifted. It's not like the United States. I mean, there is extraordinary amounts of demand for oil and gas in the world. It's not oh, like, more than ever. Of course, but it's and it's not like the United States can do it all themselves. Oh, yeah. However, like ease with which the tremendously complex uh, and tremendously technically savvy companies like Exxon and Chevron, 10 years ago, if Ecuador was like, well, um, either pay off these folks or get the F out of Ecuador, uh, Chevron would have been like, oh, geez, I, I, you know, well, can we, can I give them three billion, you know, like, um, or something like that. Today, Chevron will be like, um, well, either you forget about this judgment and never talk about it, or we just upstakes and leave. And there's not a guarantee that Exxon or somebody else is going to be interested in coming back in to, to redevelop these projects. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, one of the, I mean, it's a great thing that uh, we've found all these oil and gas resources or whatnot, well, debatably, not, probably not environmentally speaking. Um, but uh, a real downside is that a lot of countries that held on to their oil and gas resources as sort of a playing card yeah. um, are kind of losing that to some extent. So I don't know what the character of the current Ecuadorian government is. I don't know whether Chevron is or is not still in Ecuador. That's a, that's a great question. But if Chevron is still in Ecuador, that's the only card that the Ecuadorian plaintiffs have to play. And the Ecuadorian government could be more interested in the ongoing income that Chevron extracted oil provides, could be more interested in that than they are in helping out those indigenous folks. 
Um, it's also entirely possible that Chevron hasn't been there for a while anyway, in which case there's, yeah. there's, no, there's really nothing that the Ecuadorian government has to uh, hold against them. Um, so yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think these plaintiffs will get paid. A sad thing to hear because it is, it was sort of like one of the, you know, greatest court cases ever just to then be like, no, yeah, we're not paying and you're under house arrest. Yeah. That's, uh, that is incredibly unjust, but that is the way that U.S. empire works, you know? Um, and I think that, uh, people, I think that people just don't quite grasp how, I think it's it's intentionally obscured through all the processes we've been talking about, but it, like it just this is a much more modern, much more sanitized, much more careful uh, version of the Germans going in and massacring all the Herrera. You know, like this is this is twenty first century imperialism, but it is oh yeah yeah, but it is imperialism, um, and it is the U.S. Empire in many many ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, you don't have like the the horrors of of Leopold in the Congo necessarily, but you have pretty horrific ecological disaster and uh, a, a lot of time and effort and uh, investigation and supposed justice around this that is just brushed away. Um, and that's uh, it, it is also it is inappropriate, but also the case that like this podcast episode and my YouTube video will be entitled. Donziger, not you know, not the Ecuadorian plaintiffs, not, and that's just that yeah. is just another that is just another facet of imperial erasure. But as I as I close the video, uh, talking about like they, it is unjust that we're talking so much about Donziger, but it's also like this is sadly for most of the rest of the world, this is the last hope of a lot of folks who were abused by U.S. companies is that there would be a crusading environmental U.S. lawyer um, mm -hmm. who is willing to take up their case and uh, do what, what is necessary to sort of Aaron Brockovich this into a, a good settlement. And now there will be fewer of them. Um, that's, that's already happened um, because of this case. And that's, uh, that is a great shame. What are the areas you think um, America is keen on to extract from the world so they're able to, you know, keep doing these things? What you mean? What sort of patrol? Like what? What countries are likely to be optimized yeah. by these kinds of processes? And also, why is it, you know is this just showing that America will do what it wants? It won't. Uh, you know, you won't stop us doing anything. We're going to go around the world and take what we want. You you can though. Like you can. Like obviously, the United States can take advantage of any country, as I pointed out earlier, related mm -hmm. to Iran sanction stuff, of course. Um, but. There are things that certain countries can put in place. Uh, you couldn't do what we did in Ecuador in Europe, that's for sure. You couldn't do what we did in Ecuador in Saudi Arabia, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, there are places that have managed to set up their own levels of, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. It's, it's countries have to, while they're in the, in the process of being dispossessed by the United States, mm -hmm. have to figure out how to put together the levels of capacity, capacity for lack of a better term. And I think Ecuador is probably in better, is better suited now because of this, in part because of this Texaco litigation process, mm -hmm. they have the wherewithal to not allow something as horrific as 
the petroleum development that Texaco was doing in the 60s through the 90s happen again. Presumably, Ecuador has put environmental regulations in place, um, and Chevron or Exxon or whatever international company that is uh, dealing with Ecuador now um, has to put up with those costs. And presumably, I, I know that oil and gas is still being extracted in Ecuador, and it is presumably not being extracted at that same extraordinarily uh, exploitative polluting level. I mean, to be clear, the level, it's probably better in Ecuador today than it was uh, standard in the United States in the 1960s. So the, these processes can, uh, can, but if you're looking for like the true horror story, the true like where, where we're going to see like some of the worst abuses of this nature, it's definitely the Congo. Yeah. I mean, you've got the diamonds, you've got the rare earths, you've got the cobalt, got the... I think there's gold as well. I'm uh, Congo's got everything, and which makes it happy hunting ground for uh, imperialist abusers and local abusers for uh, for centuries now, uh, and that's really going to heat up. And uh, with the electric car requirements, uh, it was already pretty hot, and it's it's oh yeah yeah nightmarish, and it's not just uh, U.S. or Chinese imperialism; it's Rwanda. I mean, the Rwanda has been run uh, for three decades now by a dictator who generally gets good press because he's Tutsi and the Tutsis were uh, genocided. Um, mm -hmm. He certainly played a role in the politics back in the 90s around that as well. Um, but he kind of gets a free pass uh, because he's very U.S. affiliated, but he's been uh, one of the worst actors in the Congo for 30 years now. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's that's going to get really, really grim and really dark. And if the, if the Congolese aren't capable of, which they're not, there's like ongoing war in Congo oh, yeah, yeah. paid for and sponsored by half a dozen outside actors. If the Congolese can't put in some kind of environmental regulatory, basic regulations, basic standards uh, in the Congo, the big mining companies aren't mm -hmm. gonna do it for them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's where the, if you wanna know the worst abuses to come, I would say probably Congo. Having this legislation is one of the reasons why a lot of American pundits dislike the EU. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, sure. Like the the regulatory war between the United States and Europe is less of an issue than it, than it once was because unfortunately the Europe is, European Union has fallen in relative power to the United States uh, mm -hmm. in recent decades um, as a result of U.S. policies. Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure. I think that there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of sort of neoliberalism, business friendliness, Reagan-Thatcherite thought in Europe as well. For oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is definitely didn't go as far away from those sort of old New Deal dirigiste uh, in the French, I think that's the, the, what the French call it, principles of uh, a sort of more managed society. And that's a tremendous point of contention between uh, Europe and the United States. Though now I think there's actually probably some help, uh, healthy competition in environmental regulation uh, between the United States and Europe. And uh, so there's, that's an aspect of it as well. But yeah, for sure, that, that, that's one of the things that uh, uh, the United States found most threatening back when it saw the EU as a threat, regulatory stuff. So I didn't mean to, didn't mean to end it on such a depressing note, but he, and I think- Well, it's a depressing topic, sadly. Yes, it's a very depressing topic. But I think this is this is why um, the fact that I 
I don't talk about it as much, but the fact that I do have a background in law, specifically international corporate law, is why I am so much more suspicious of these prognostications of, oh, the American empire is falling, China just oh, didn't steal, <laughs> or BRICS is coming for us for everything. They're, they've got a new currency, they say. Uh, the mints are coming next. You don't hear much about them. Oh, I remember the mints. That was was that <laughs> Malaysia, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Turkey. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah that was yeah. The the, the mint the mints uh, have have fallen by the wayside. Uh, barely but, hear the bricks mentioned. Hmm? Was it? You barely hear the bricks. Oh, the bricks. I, I my my YouTube commenters would would disagree. If, oh, uh, yeah. There's been very recent. Uh, maybe it's not being reported on as heavily in Europe, but uh, there's a little bit of much ballyhooed. Uh, BRICS stuff going on. Apparently, uh, there's been a development bank for quite some time, but there's recent uh, press releases around Russia is abandoning the dollar, Saudi Arabia is abandoning the dollar, maybe Malaysia is abandoning the dollar, maybe Brazil. And then you sort of look into the fine print and it's like, well, actually, you know, for a very small uh, type of. And I think Russia's maybe sold all its dollars at this point. That process, I think, happened started in 2014. I mean, that's an important thing because for this was actually a very real, real concern among serious policymakers in the 2000s. Was like, what would happen if some of these foreigners who've purchased all our debt, you know, what happens if they abandon it? And that absolutely happened over a period of a couple of years after 2014, after uh, Russia kind of semi-hemi-demi invaded Ukraine with the Crimea annexation and whatnot. U.S. put on sanctions and Russia essentially dumped most of their U.S. securities. And what happened was the Fed bought them um, and it, it had no real impact. But theoretically, there should be some limit to that process. But people get very, very excited every single time some kind of finance minister somewhere says, you know what, maybe we're going to start buying some stuff with the Chinese currency instead of the U.S. currency. And uh, it sets people off. Ah, U.S. empire falls tomorrow. And I'm just <laughs> like, you know, like. There are surprising, people can take this too far, but there are surprising holdovers of importance and relevance for London. I mean, British the British Empire has not been the most powerful element in the world, I would argue, since 1917, um, and most would argue since 1945. Uh, yet still, 78 years after uh, 1945, London still has a lot of vestigial legal... Oh, yeah, yeah. And financial power. Uh, for... And a huge amount of uh, cultural clout. Yeah. Um, and the United States has not even begun. I would argue that U.S. power isn't even in it. So, yeah, this idea that there's going to be some magic switch, you know, Saudi Arabia decides to buy a few more renminbi and then that's it. Boom. <laughs> U.S. is over. I don't find them creditable. And they don't make much sense to me. Yeah. So, sadly, keep an eye on the Congo for the next horrific legal case that will not... <laughs> compensate those who were um, wronged. Well, I, you know, who's who's to say? Well, yeah, the problem is how could you even try to do? I think what what's what because Ecuador was is... a lot more stable. It it would be much easier to track Ecuador. What happened there, which is nuts because it's so difficult. It's such a remote area with native people, yeah. and the Congo is uh, a horrible situation currently. Yeah, but the, the Congo's been uh, pretty disastrous uh, as long as there's been a Congo. Um, as long as those Belgians landed. 
Yep. Uh, they were, uh, they really, uh, really did a number on that place. And, uh, I haven't, I haven't done the, the details, uh, or haven't gotten the details to my satisfaction about the transition from the Belgians to Lumumba to, mm -hmm. uh, Mobutu. Uh, but I do know that uh, they really rather swiftly, the Congo rather swiftly transitioned from a Belgian, uh, colony to a, an American protectorate. And then just fell into chaos when we actually made the right decision. We actually made the right decision that, oh, gosh, our, our client in Congo, uh, then known as Zaire, is a nightmarish horror story. We need to stop backing him. And that was the right decision. That was actually the right decision we, we made in Somalia as well at the end of the Cold War. Uh, unfortunately, uh, what happened after that in both places was um, chaos. Yeah. Well, it's when you have any uh, big power leave, you have a power vacuum. I feel like that can be overdone, Rory. I okay. feel like that can that that can be uh, that can be, uh, but that's a, that's an entirely entirely different argument. It's it's if you're if you have systematically over the course of decades set up a power center in a country that is entirely reliant on your continued funding and support, which was the case in uh, Zaire, which became the Congo, and in Somalia, then yes, leaving is bad. But oh, yeah. uh, if uh, I, I feel like. If the U.S. pulled out of Germany, um, you know, pulled its oh, pieces yeah. out of Germany, I feel like Germany would probably be okay. Uh, um, you know, you know. <laughs> um, I feel like if we pulled out of our bases in uh, the Middle East, you know, uh, it's entirely possible that uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Qatar might not last very long. But who cares? <laughs> it's it's it quite a, a tagline for the show. <laughs> Bahrain, who cares? Oh, I, I care a lot for the Bahraini people. I don't care very much for the uh, folks who uh, uh, have been in murderous control of it uh, for, for the past number of decades. But yeah. Uh, so it's like Chevron, they will not uh, face any consequences? Uh, not as long as Saudi Arabia is around. But uh, uh, and so in, in 2011, Bahrain was uh, actually one of the more quickly um, Unseated. Uh, they were not fully unseated, but they looked very, very shaky, very, very quickly. The the Bahraini really ruling family uh, looked almost certain to fall, um, mm. and then Saudi Arabia simply invaded. Um, Bahrain's a very small country. Um, Saudi Arabia doesn't have much of a military, but uh, I mean, Bahrain is literally it's like a tiny little nub mm. off of Saudi Arabia, and the Saudi military was equal to the task of. Uh, pulling into Bahrain, crushing uh, the street protests, and uh, reinstalling that royal family. Um, and that's so. Yeah, not not a ton of sympathy uh, for the folks in charge in Bahrain or Qatar. So, is there anything potentially coming up soon to keep an eye on for this court case? Uh, I just don't. I, I there's nothing scheduled. No big. Not not that I'm aware of. Not okay. that I'm aware of. No, I, I think it's just going to be ongoing. Well, I think Chevron's going to keep going after Donziger for every penny he makes doing anything. Yeah. Um, I do think that they'll might wait a year or two for people to forget about who Donziger is. But uh, yeah, no, it, it, there's not there, there's not um, there is not a step forward uh, here uh, that I see. No excitement like Trump. Uh, well, Trump's just you know it's non going, uh, non stuff. Be a circus outside the court, nothing like that. Yeah. Uh, no, no. And I know there actually should be for this. <laughs> that's true. Uh, I think, you know, over the past two weeks, we've discussed the Trump, uh, the Trump insanity and, uh, this, uh, this Donziger thing. And I think this Donziger case. Well, it's sad because the Trump case is a bit of a nothing as, as far as 
things go and compared to this case it felt like it should have a lot more people learning about it going yep. through it Netflix documentaries but no <laughs> I think there is a documentary I think that actually might have been one of the main things that uh, uh, screwed over Donziger actually was that there were outtakes for a documentary that Donziger's team had helped get made or at least encouraged to be made <laughs> that actually uh, had Donziger and other people on his team saying things that it was very Hulk easy mind Chevron <laughs> yeah it was very easy for Chevron to treat as um, somewhat uh, fraudulent or mm -hmm. incorporating Rico or whatever the heck that is, something I don't understand. So, yeah, it's not, it is not a happy story, uh, the, the case. But it's definitely a very interesting one that you should look into. It's an not, not a happy story, but an important one. Oh, definitely. So we will catch you next time. Indeed. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>